Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's most recent foray into the film world with Phantom Thread and Mike McDonough's three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. We'll also be talking about recent news and reviewing the Oscar noms for the 2018 Oscars. But first, Andy, what'd you watch this week? I watched a whole lot this week. So I went and saw Phantom Thread and three billboards, which we're going to talk about later. Um, and then I also spent some quality time on the couch um, watching some things on Netflix. I uh, was captivated by Hellraiser 2. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. You shall not pass! Not back to back, but those two. <laughs> those are two, two very different films. Uh, you've got a sequel to an 80s horror classic and... Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, what's, what possessed you to watch these movies? Okay, so there's this funny thing about Hellraiser in that when those movies came out, I would have been way too young to see them, but I remember seeing the imagery everywhere. Like, I saw the posters and, you know, ads and Pinhead, and I like had never actually seen any of the nine Hellraiser movies uh, that there are. There are so, nine Hellraiser movies? There are nine Hellraiser movies. Oh, my God. A number of them, I think, straight to DVD. Uh, but anyways, I so back in October around Halloween, uh, the original Hellraiser was on, on Netflix. Uh, so I finally decided to, to give, it a, give it a whirl. And it's, it, it's so funny because it, it, it's just got these kind of cheap, low-budget effects. But it's, it's also kind of brilliant in a slasher uh, demon way. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's dumb kind of B horror movie entertainment, but it kind of grabs you in a weird way. So I watched the sequel Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, um, and it's probably worse. It's probably not as enjoyable, (laughs) but, but something about this stupid, uh, mythology, uh, kind of grabs me. And I, I feel like you, you don't get a lot of this really gory horror, horror movie, uh, style anymore it's kind of a dated thing it's definitely body horror and there's something i get where you're coming from there's something about falling down this like clive barker rabbit hole in his movies and like the way he makes his stuff that's just fascinating because hellraiser is a clive barker story and it is yeah there's something about it i know what you mean i watched it again this october i had seen it before (laughs) when i was a kid it scared the hell out of me back then and it's not like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not like Halloween or Friday the 13th. Like, it's got its own, like, identity and feeling to it that the others don't have. Even if it's not really that well made. Like, th- some of those gore effects, I I think, still hold up. It's some of the yeah. best I've ever seen, really. Yeah. For practical effects, anyway. And the Cenobites themselves are, you know, they're very horrific. And, sorry, and one of the things that, that always makes me laugh, though, in the first Hellraiser is they're in this god-awful house and it's one of these things this couple moves into this this house and they're like oh my god it's perfect and it's like that this house has probably has like mold and asbestos and <laughs> <laughs> like it looks so gross and there's clearly like a murder shack in the attic and right there are rats in the walls yeah and they're like oh my god the house is perfect and so just that much uh makes me laugh i'm glad that they vastly improved the house the, that everyone dies in in hellraiser 2 Something we talked about at one point is how poorly the house is filmed in the first one. You don't get a good layout of what the house is like. You know you know, the murder room is in the attic, but that's about it. Like, the stairway is cramped, and you can't really see. It and... looks like there's three rooms in, in this house. It's very tiny. Yeah, and stairs to get up to it. You know there's a kitchen downstairs because of the scene in that, but, like, you don't... They're very poor at, at kind of setting the stage, but the murder room, 
You get to know the murder room. Yeah, that you, you, the intricate details of that, it, it's down pat. What do you think of Fellowship? So I haven't seen Fellowship in ages. Not and I, like I don't think I've actually rewatched Return of the King since I saw it in theaters. Other than when it's on like on the holidays, that sort of thing. Um, so I just kind of decided to sit down and and watch it, um, looking to kill some time. And uh, it man, it really holds up. Like, it is I, an. Inv- <laughs> Go ahead. I, I remember I, like this was I think it came out around two thousand one. I remember going driving to the theater like two hours early so I could buy tickets. You know, this was way before online ticketing and all that. Um, mm. But man, it holds up so well. It just it it looks really good. It's well acted, well written. And what I love is, I feel like every single scene is the climax of the film. Like yeah. everything is the most epic thing that ever was. And it's just like it just seems to never end. Like the, you know, the Shire and Rivendell and the Black Riders and just like Isengard and the mines. It's just, everything is so over the top and it, it's always, great. I've always had trouble explaining to people. Fellowship is my favorite of the three. And I think part of the reason is because it's such a good exercise in like world building. And it gives you such a sense of wonder of like, wow, anything could happen in this mystical place. And Peter Jackson does such a good job of putting that on screen and making you believe it. And you're exactly right. Every scene has this kind of weight and power to it. And I feel like the other films had that too, but by Two Towers and Return of the King, like you kind of knew what to expect. Fellowship was just this new thing that felt different, that felt unlike a lot of movies I had seen before. It's a really cool experience. And I well, haven't watched it again in a while. It's a time investment. It's a long movie. Yeah, and it's the extended edition. It the extended edition is what what's on Netflix. Oh, um, I didn't know it was on Netflix. Good to know. So, yeah, just just the first one. So now I'll have to wait till the licensing allows allows the next ones. <laughs> Someday. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's particularly with with Gandalf, though, all his lines are, I mean, it's like Shakespeare. It's like the most epic thing he could ever say every single time. It's great. Oh, yeah. Right. Gandalf is always hitting the high note every time. He gets, he gets the best lines always. He's a very lovable character, which reminds me, just the other day, I think it was Ian McKellen's birthday, so... Shout out to Ian McKellen. Hopefully that guy never goes anywhere. I love him to death. What did I watch this week? Thank you for asking. I watched... What did uh, you watch? (laughs) Thank you. I watched uh, Blade Runner 2049. Which was a treat. It was my first time watching it since I was in the theater. Hooray. And I watched Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I did not catch Phantom Thread, but I'm looking forward to grilling you about it. Because it looks so much fun. Uh, no, I, I, I had the option to go see one of the two. And I was like, man, I don't know. I, I think I'm just going to stick with three billboards. <laughs> like it, And it's funny because, you know what, we'll get into it. We'll talk about three billboards in, in, later. But as far as Blade Runner 2049 goes, it was a great screening. I've got a couple thoughts. Um, I, I had a lot more time to absorb the themes of the movie. Um, and spent you know less time looking at... The, the look of it and the cinematography and setting and the sound of it, which I still really enjoyed, by the way. The soundtrack is incredible. I think I like it more now than I did before. But, like, it was a lot more time to kind of absorb what the characters say. Like, Wallace this time around, Jared Leto's character, wasn't just spouting nonsense. Like, the things he was saying, I was actually yeah. like, wow, this actually is deep and there's something to this. Like, it, yeah, it had a lot more weight now that I kind of took a second swing at it. The one thing that really disappointed me was the first time I saw Blade Runner 2049, I was in a Dolby theater and the sound was so loud, my seat would shake. Like anytime, pretty much anything happened. 
This time, I was watching it at 2 a.m., and my girlfriend was asleep in the other room, so I was trying to be quiet, and I did not get the same auditory experience that I had before. Um, and I wish I had, but I still really enjoyed it. I did discover something interesting, and we might want to save this for a discussion we were talking about having about Blade Runner 2049. It's a little bit more spoilery in a few weeks. Um, we'll get to that later, but... Uh, I found a brilliant place for an intermission in that movie. What uh, I would argue is the best possible place Blade Runner 2049 could have an intermission. I think I found it. Um, can but you that's kind. Can you say it without giving it away? I can give you the timestamp on the Blu-ray. Okay. If that, if that, <laughs> I'll, yeah, it doesn't really give you anything. But uh, it's it's basically it's basically the halfway point of the movie. I think the movie clocks in at it's like two, two hours forty three minutes. Yeah, and change. This is one hour, 23 minutes, and 18 seconds into the movie. And if you're watching the movie and you happen to kind of stop around then, you'll realize exactly what I'm talking about. I think it's a brilliant place to stop, and I would love to tell you more about it off air, but for anybody who hasn't seen it, I don't want to ruin it for you. So Good point. We'll, you know, we'll I've, talk about it later. I've made that same suggestion to people uh, when I suggest 2001, because that's kind of a lot to take in, that there's four distinct sections. So take a break between each one, so you get... Three little short breaks. It makes it a little bit easier to digest. You know, I've got 2001 on DVD, and the first time I watched it, I wasn't really a fan. So I might I might have to get that from you and heed that warning and maybe watch it again, because that movie is an absolutely lot to take in. Kubrick at his finest. We're ready to move on to news? Yep. All right. First thing on the news. Movie Pass. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> the Shining. That's a, that's a little sneak peek. The Shining sequel, Doctor Sleep, gets director Mike Flanagan. Stephen King sequel adapt adaptation follows Danny Torrance as an adult. You are a tremendous fan of Kubrick's The Shining. Oh, I, and it's absolutely. Because watching Blade Runner, I had a thought about this. I tweeted something about it, and, and I wanted to talk about this. And this brings brings it to mind. I'll talk about it after the story, though. Mike Flanagan. For those who don't know, who who is he? Um. I just know he's kind of known as a horror director. He recently di uh, directed Gerald's Game, which is another Stephen King adaptation on Netflix. Hit. And he's had some other horror successes, and so he's been tapped to do the sequel. Um, what I'm interested to see is, you know, Dr. Sleep is a sequel to the book, The Shining, and The Shining book is vastly different from uh, the film. I'm about actually about halfway through reading uh, The Shining at this point. So I, I'm i not real sure where it's going to go because if you're making the film, it kind of has to be a sequel to the film, but it's also based on the book. They're the two books. So um, I think there's a big challenge there and what direction uh, the sequel will go. I, I do know that it will deal with uh, grown-up Danny, um, you know, in his 40s, still dealing with a lot of the same demons his father did, at least in the book, mainly alcoholism. And also probably, you know, seeing ghosts and still, you know, shining on. Shining on. I love that. It should be a t-shirt. Shine on. So here's what I think. If you're going to follow up to The Shining, it should probably have certainly a tribute to, to Kubrick, but I, I don't think you can copy him. I, I, I don't. I don't oh, no. think you can, you can make a movie that feels like Kubrick made a sequel because Kubrick just had such a... I mean, not to say you couldn't, and maybe you could, but, like, I don't think you should try. I think you should try to kind of make it your own movie, um, similar to kind of the remake for It versus, like, the original. Like, they didn't try to, like, oh, we're just going to remake it exactly what it was. No, we're going we're gonna to give it its own identity. We're going to give it its own feeling, 
and we're going to make it its own thing. And based on what Mike Flanagan did with Gerald's game, I don't think that's something he's foreign to. But you're right. I'm interested to see where you're going exactly. I think the general public is more familiar with the movie than they are with the book. Then again, I don't think the general public has ever seen the movie. Who am I kidding? So yeah, I, I don't know that. Yeah, but it's weird. Yeah, you're directing a sequel. Um, I don't know how you're going to angle it. I would bet for marketing, they're probably going to act like it's its own thing, right? Yeah. Like just, oh, you don't have to have seen the original. This is its own thing, and you can watch this and like it. And I'd also bet this is a little bit of a litmus test to see if there's any weight under a Shining remake. But that's just me. What do you, what do you think? Oh, gosh. Um, man, a Shining remake would be – that'd be – It'd be some heavy stuff, but the thing, if you went that direction, you might have to base it more on the story in the novel as opposed to the film. Um, Because it's great. I've seen in interviews where, you know, Kubrick and and Stephen King were talking, and Stephen King is saying, well, my story is about this. And Kubrick's like, no, I think it's about this. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, he's the one who wrote it, but (laughs) but his interpretation of it is is different, and that's what he went with. Hmm. Well... I don't know what'll happen, but what I did want to say, uh, when I was watching Blade Runner 2049, I was inspired for some reason in the middle of the movie, uh, to put together a short list for potential directors to remake The Shining in a Kubrickian way that that feels like a Kubrick movie. Who could do it? Who's a director now that you feel like could put it together? Obviously watching Blade Runner 2049, my front runner as Denis Villeneuve, but I genuinely believe there's something to that. I'm telling you, watch Blade Runner 2049, watch those long cuts and tell me that guy can't make something scary. Like, yeah. I bet he could, and I bet it could be awesome. I'd also say somebody like um, Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu would be cool, even though, I, I don't know, I guess I just think of the Danny Torrance, like, going down the hallway scenes, and it reminds me of stuff from you know, The Revenant and Harry Potter 3, and oddly enough, my other one, just because I needed somebody, uh... On Twitter, I said jokingly Kevin Smith, which I'm kidding, <laughs> obviously. Director of Yoga Hosers. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I thought it might be, be a good one. I'm like, that'd be an interesting exercise for him. Try wow. to make a Kubrick film. Like, I don't know. That's might, just me. That's, that's my short list. That might be more in-depth than Kubrick even, or, or up right. to par. Like, um, it, It's interesting. Last thing I'll say about this is that, um, so Danny Torrance, I forget the actor's name, um, he has not acted in anything since then. I believe I think that was the his like one and only role but he would I mean he could maybe come back as you know because he would be in his 40s now he would be the perfect so that that would be really cool if 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 he's still like you know a competent actor to bring him back uh, for the sequel Danny Lloyd is his name he's currently an American teacher and a former actor so yeah he also put out some music believe it or not he's on Spotify oh my god Check out uh, Fossil Fly. That's the name of his album, Dance and Electronic. Weird. I didn't know that. Today I learned. So the other news story we've got is Movie Pass, our favorite. You show <laughs> you you pulled this story. I I, I didn't in see in our this. continuing saga of I know. Movie Pass. Hey man, like we could be forerunners for all I know. Ten years from now, people might listen back and be like, these guys knew they were onto something big. <laughs> Movie Pass. Pulls support from popular AMC theaters. The subscription service hangs its customers out to dry. Andy, what do you think? So, just to recap, MoviePass is a service. You pay 10 bucks a month, and you can see essentially unlimited films. There's a, a number of restrictions, but you know, as long as you go at certain times or certain theaters, jump through some hoops, you can see one, basically one movie a day um, for 10 bucks a month. So, it's a pretty good deal. The problem is it's... 
a bad business model because if you see more than one movie or let's say you live in an expensive area and tickets are $15, $16, you know, movie pass is already upside down on, um, on the business model, especially, I mean, I've read about people seeing five, 10 movies a month. So if you've seen a hundred, $150 worth of movies and you're only paying 10 bucks a month, that's obviously not good business. And so they they haven't pulled it from all AMC's. They've pulled it from some really big um, theaters, like in New York and L.A. And I think places that are really high traffic and also high dollars. So it's really costing them uh, to be there. And so they, they pulled it. They didn't comment. They just pulled it from those theaters. Right. Looking at this article, it's important. The keyword in the article in the, in the headline is popular. AMC theaters. They didn't pull support for all AMCs, just big ones. And what's interesting is people are speculating this is some kind of hardball negotiation tactic in the hopes that the customers would get pissed at AMC and say something. And AMC put out a statement through their Twitter account, AMC Helps, uh, saying that some of our guests say MoviePass may be blocking the use of their service. Uh, AMC has not restricted MoviePass anywhere, and you should contact MoviePass if this is a problem. So it seems like MoviePass pulled this trigger in, in an attempt to, I don't know, yeah, get people upset at AMC and say, hey, you should take my MoviePass, what's your problem? Um, which is strange. It's a, it's a, it's a power move, frankly. Um, well, I don't know what I, that means. I feel like it's, it, it has more to do with them probably losing massive amounts of money at those theaters. MoviePass is. It's um, a good point. I didn't think about that. And also, you know, this AMC said this, and everyone kind of hated on them, uh, but AMC said this is not a sustainable business model. You will depress the price of tickets. People will think that, you know, $2 to go to the movies is normal and or I'm not paying more than $2, you know, and that could very well happen. Mm. It, it really is. God, I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely right. It could just be like, Hey, we're really hurting for money at these places. We're just going to cut them off and see what happens. Um, it's frightening to think that this could have anything to do with, yeah, social media backlash and, and what people might think. But, I mean, we're reading an article about it on our movie podcast, so clearly it got some play. Uh, I'd be lying if it didn't. But, man, movie pass is going places. They're getting somewhere. Like, this is this is a power play. It's could a move. Be the, could be the beginning of the it. end. Who yeah, knows? maybe. Well, now that they're, now they're getting into distribution, so we'll probably see them for a good long time. Any more thoughts on the news, Andy? No, I think we're ready to move on. Well, I think we should move on, yes, to our first film of the week. But before that, we have some correspondence. Oh, my God. You're right. We have correspondence. (laughs) I didn't even mention that in the intro. Yes, we decided we're going to do correspondence at the beginning of the show. I just hit my mic into my face. At the end of the news, we got one email this week. We're very excited. If you'd like to be a part of our correspondence, email us at offscript.com filmreview.com. I totally had that ready to go. Mail off- at offscriptfilmreview.com. <laughs> I wrote it in the notes. I wrote it wrong. Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. That is our email. Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Hello, gentlemen. We've seen throughout the years that big-ticket male actors are usually a safe bet for box office success. Tom Cruise, Will Smith, Harrison Ford, and the Chris's Hemsworth, Pine, Pratt. Funny. Do you think guys? Do you guys think that the that with the Me Too movement and Hollywood's sensitivity to it, we'll begin to see more leading female characters in leading roles? Aside from Wonder Woman and the Hunger Games series, I've yet to see a female star-driven movie that genuinely left me satisfied on my way out of the theater. While I would welcome a change, I fear that this has way too much potential to fail. Your thoughts, Max? First off, Max, thank you for the email. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Max. Andy. Go ahead. What What do you got? Okay, so I think there's actually two different 
issues here. Um, the Me Too movement has to do with, um, you know, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and protecting young, or not young, just protecting women and men um, who are in vulnerable positions, both in Hollywood and in the workplace at large, um, from predatory behavior. And so I think that's a separate issue from uh, gender equality in or equal representation in film. These are two kind of separate issues. And so while I the while the Me Too movement is very important um, for for certain reasons, gender equality in films is is kind of a separate issue. But I do want to talk about that uh, a little bit because uh, people have said that before before, um, and I and I'm sure this comes down to the accountants. I'm sure back in in the earlier days of film, people said the same thing. Well, if you put people, if you put minorities on screen, people won't go to the theater. So we're, we're not going to put them in. And then it took a while for attitudes to change. And once they did, they realized, Oh yes, people like Will Smith can draw a lot of money. And so this is the exact same thing with, uh, you know, men, male action stars and female action stars. Wonder woman itself proved that you could have a female led superhero film and it could, be a good movie and massively successful. And this shouldn't be a surprise because ultimately it comes down to how good the property you're given or how good it's written. Um, a good example that I that I was thinking about earlier is um, around 2005, we got two superhero movies. One was called Batman Begins, which, <laughs> which was an incredible new vision uh, of Batman. And around the same time, we also got a, a movie called Catwoman. Featuring Halle Berry, which is god awful and has this notoriously bad and cringe-inducing basketball scene. Um, but it's like, what's the difference between these two films? Well, one was written terribly, and the other one had a great director and a great great writer. And it's like, well, you, you know, a female action star can do just as well as a male action star if you if they're giving good property, if they're gi- giving, uh, you know. A seat at the table, to borrow a phrase. I think, the, to kind of break down what you said, the first thing I'd like to point out, when did Catwoman come out? What year Two, was that? I think it was 2004. Okay. Well, in 2003, Daredevil came out, and that had a terrible playground fight scene between Jennifer Garner and yes. Ben Affleck. So, I I don't know. You just said basketball scene. I'm like, oh, God, that reminds me of the, the terrible Daredevil scene. Those, anyway. are both, those are both kind of in contention for the worst scenes ever in right in a superhero film and daredevil came out in 2003 so it's not like catwoman was 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 moving into uncharted waters it had been done before um first as far as the me too movement i think is the me too movement you're right it's a separate issue hollywood's sensitivity to it that is interesting that does catch my ear because you're right hollywood is very sensitive to what's going on with its female Stars. I was going to say employees because it's not strictly limited to celebrities. It's also people behind the scenes. Um, you're right. Hollywood is very aware of that. I think that's true. Um, but you're also right, Andy. I, I don't think that particularly affects whether or not like a woman is in a movie. Um, I think because of the success of a movie like Wonder Woman, I think the, the, the bean counters, the accountants in Hollywood are starting to notice, hey, wow, maybe there is an audience for female-driven films. You can look at a movie like Atomic Blonde for the same reason, but you can also look at a movie like Atomic Blonde and see that it wasn't exactly a smash box office success. They still have to be written well. They still have to be well-produced. Exactly. It still has to be a good movie. Yeah. So on and the one hand – go ahead. Though I was going to say you can also look at films like Mad Max – 
and or Fury Road specifically, and sure. the the Force Awakens. You know, these are both female led films. Uh, Mad Max is kind of half and half, but it, that's arguably Furiosa's story, um, and not Max's uh, in that movie. But if you know, the only reason we haven't had more successful or kind of these big bullet names is just because they haven't been given a chance to give them these properties. You haven't given an Indiana Jones character to a female lead. Oh, you're just now giving a Star Wars character to a female lead. Right. And it's not to say that you can't. It's just hard. It's hard to convince audiences of, of I don't want to say breaking a stereotype, but they just don't see that a lot. We don't see a lot of like big female characters on screen. I'd like to see more of it because it's a change in Hollywood. It's a shift from the formula. It's like why I keep likening back to Thor Ragnarok being a shift from like the traditional Marvel format. It's 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 something different. It's something new. One of the movies we're talking about today is has a female uh, lead, and it's fantastic. Um, I think it's a good thing, and you're absolutely right. It definitely has potential to fail, just like any film movement. Um, but I'd still rather, almost like Blade Runner 2049 being a box office bomb, I'd still rather say we tried and it didn't work out this time than just... I don't know, ha- go at it half-heartedly. I think right. studios should should invest in this, should try harder, swing for the fences. And who knows, maybe we'll get something great. Well, and we've mentioned this with the comic book films, that there's, you know, we've had 10 years of essentially male-led uh, Marvel films, and we're just finally going to get the Captain Marvel film. And there's lots of other properties that we could tap into uh, that would be really successful. Uh, Supergirl would be an excellent uh, uh, film. CW series currently. Right. They're developing... uh, Joss Whedon is developing a Batgirl movie, uh, which could be really good. Oh, yeah. Um, And then... Sorry, that wasn't a dismissive laugh, just Joss Whedon's Batgirl. Like, I can't wait to see that movie. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, it... And the thing is, in comics, comics and, like, video games, we said this before, do a much better job of being uh, gender equal. Um, Right now, I can tell you that the the current Thor is Jane Foster. The current Iron Man is actually Iron Heart, who's uh, a black teenager. Um, th- there's two Green Lanterns, who one is woman, what one is a man. Like so, this happens a lot more in other mediums, and there's no reason that it can happen more in the films. And they have lots of material to draw on. Something that I did want to mention, and we don't have much more time on this. We do need to move along, but I did want to mention something that I have kind of struggled with personally and I don't think this is necessarily where you're coming from but your email reminded me of it Max so here it is I thought looking at Black Panther the movie I was like doesn't that seem a little maybe a little exploitative and I thought that way about maybe like the Captain Marvel movie too it's like okay now suddenly we're getting women in roles because we know it's popular but like that's the wrong reason to have a woman in a role just because you know it'll make money you should want it because that's beneficial to the story a movie like three billboards is a brilliant example of that like i i don't know if a man could have played the role in any kind of similar vein to the way francis mcdormand did so help me see the light here andy black panther uh wonder woman those aren't exploitative right because i feel like i feel like when i say they are it i'm a bad person i don't want to be (laughs) so help me see the light here and then go that towards that i mean i'll need to i mean we'll obviously need to see black panther uh but to me, there's a difference between exploitation and celebration. You right. know, when I think of like black exploitation films of the '70s, 
uh, in the 80s. It's these films that capitalized on black culture and black slang and fashion, and that was it. And it was also not representative of the actual community. Um, so it all, I think it all hinges on depicting whether it's minorities or women or whatever as, as people accurately, not as the caricatures that we think they are, the stereotypes or this or that. Right. I, I felt this was reinforced when I saw a series of posters. They might have been fan posters. I could have this wrong, but I saw a series of posters come out for Black Panther with different characters, and each one had, like, the outline of Africa around them. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> like, you know, you don't see American movies coming out with the outline of America on the poster. But then again, we definitely have American Honey, American Baptism. Like, there's a lot of movies with America on it. So I guess you're absolutely right. Like, I should be looking at this as a celebration of something and not as any kind of cynical, crappy white people in Hollywood making money off black people in the theater move. So... I'm going to get out of this before I dig a hole any deeper (laughs) and move right along to our first movie. Uh, Andy, you saw it. I didn't. You want to go ahead and kick this off? Yes. Uh, Up next is Phantom Thread. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. I'm looking for trouble. Stop. Which is uh, the latest foray, as you said, by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. An auteur, if ever there's, there was one. Ooh, in, throwing in, the big words out. All right. In Hollywood. Uh, he's most most probably famously recently remembered for There Will Be Blood, his last collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, since then, he's done The Master, which was one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last roles. And then Inherent Vice, which I, I haven't seen yet, but I've heard is very good. Um, so Phantom Thread. Um, stars Daniel Day-Lewis as fashion designer Reynolds Woodcock. Um, and he it takes place in 50s, 1950s Britain. He designs for royalty, for politicians, for film stars. He's a big deal. And he lives in this big house in London. And he lives with his sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville. Um, and... At the very beginning, he has this breakfast, and there's lots of breakfasts in this film, and a lot of kind of important things happen at breakfast. Um, and his the woman he's dating and who who's, lives in the house, um, she tries to kind of con- confront him about the relationship, and he's like, I can't deal with this right now. I have to go to deliver a dress. And then subsequently has his sister kick her out. And so he has kind of this stream of women that kind of live come and live in the house that he dates and are also his muse and inspiration for dressmaking. Um, and so after that very short breakfast, they go out to the country and, you know, to get some air and kind of relax. And he meets uh, Alma, paid, played by uh, Vicky Kreps, um, at a restaurant. And they hit it off and kind of fall for each other right away. They go on a date. And he immediately, this is kind of strange, they go back to his house and he starts kind of, measuring her up to make a dress he just you know has her stand on the whatever it is and starts taking measurements and then his um sister come home comes home sees all this um and then she sits, just sits down and starts taking measurements she's you know he starts shouting numbers and he's uh she's writing them down and it's it's really bizarre because it's like this is such an odd thing but it's clearly happened before it's clearly happened a lot um and then she comes eventually lives with him in in his house in London. And then the rest of the movie 
is about their dynamics of the relationship between these people amidst the fashion hustle and bustle of the 1950s. Um, it, it particularly has this whole issue, or not issue, but theme of like power and, and submission. And one of the brilliant things I read uh, somewhere was that this is Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, take on Fifty Shades of Grey, funnily enough. Like it's, really? it's, it's about, well, because it's about, like I said, a different roles and about power and submission, but and it's nothing, it's not sexual at all. It's, it's more than that. Um, so he, he's Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, Reynolds, is, um, he's really difficult to deal with. He's, um, he has all these routines, and if you disturb the routine, he'll get very upset and just kind of become real irritable. You know, he gets upset when Alma spreads butter on her toast too loud or cuts her sausages too strongly. Like, wow, I mean, uh, breakfast. He's kind of breakfast. Yeah, lots, lots of breakfasts. Um, and so, like I said, the rest of the movie deals with the relationships between these two slash three people. Um, and you know, Alma is very, she's stubborn and bullheaded just like Reynolds is. And so they're a good match in that way. Cause they both kind of challenge each other. Um, and so that, that's all I'll say about uh, the plot and things about the movie. Um, so, <laughs> so I did not really enjoy it. <laughs> um, funnily okay. enough, I, it was very long. It moved very slow. I checked my watch a lot. But that's not to say it's not a good good movie. And this this is something I've I've always said is that just because you don't enjoy it doesn't mean a piece of art is isn't great art. Because um, it is very complex. It's well made. It's well written. It's interesting characters. It was just it was like eating your vegetables. You know, it was tough to get through. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you don't go to a museum and look at a painting and be like, this is stupid and shouldn't be in here. Like, it's art. Even if you don't really get it, like, it doesn't make it any less art. I can get behind that. There's plenty of movies I've watched that, that are that way. As far as the movie goes, I've got some questions for you. Let's start with the setting. It's in the 50s. It's in Britain. It's a period piece. The last movie I watched was a period piece was Darkest Hour, which I'm pretty sure was set... I don't want to say it's the fifties, but just no, just before it would have been World War One or two, right? What did, did do you feel like the representation of London was relatively accurate, or because you're following around a character who is, I would assume, a higher class of citizen, you're kind of seeing just a nicer version of it? Because I've looked at set photos, and frankly, some of them like they look modern. They don't, they're not. They, they don't look like oh, that's that's set in the fifties. It's like that that picture could have been taken yesterday, for all I know. So, sure. I, what do you think? Well. It, it's one of those things where the everything about it is kind of screams the time, time period. They have servants that live in in their house. They have, I think, actually some of their workers are like seamstresses and things that live in the house. Everything is made by hand. You know, there's lots of scenes in dressmaking. And I read somewhere that Daniel Day Lewis actually learned to make some sort of complicated dress. That for, sounds like pre- Daniel Day Lewis. Of course, yeah, well, of course, yeah. Um, surprised he didn't start his own fashion line <laughs> to, to to prepare uh, for the, the Day role. Lewis collection. Yeah, it, and you can tell just by the way he handles everything, the way he takes measurements, the way he handles scissors, the way that you can tell that he's physically done this bo- uh, before. Um, so, I mean, most of it takes place inside the house, and you, I mean, just you can tell by by the servants and just the air of everything that it, you know, it's not modern. Um, let's talk about fashion. When you talk about a movie that's about fashion, I think of something like, 
Oddly Perfume, the story of a murder, even though it's not about fashion, but it's about... Some, I, I, never mind. If you haven't seen it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's something like The Devil Wears Prada. Um, sure. I, th- I think of pretentious. That's what you think of when you think of fashion. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis is often thought of as maybe a pretentious actor. Um, was that a prevalent theme in this movie? Was it relatively humbling? I mean, where, where'd you land? Well, so it's important to, to know that the the fashion side of it is the background. It's the backdrop for the story, the kind of character study of these three people. So okay. yeah. while he is a kind of a pretentious jerk and the industry there, I mean, they're in high fashion British society, uh, you know, th- that's the industry they're in. That's which is also very pretentious itself. But this, the story is not that is not the focus. The focus is on their dynamics between um, Alma Reynolds and uh, Sister Cyril. I wanted to ask about kind of the look of the movie. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson usually has like a very fine eye for making a frame almost look like a painting. You can take different frames out of his movies and like they're just gorgeous. Like the way he frames things and lights things and how things look. I mean, you can look at the movie like The Master, and there's so many, so many shots in that movie that are just beautiful. Um, how was he in this movie? Um, yeah, there, there's some excellent, excellent shots. Uh, there's particularly what comes to mind is there's the New Year's Eve party they go to at one point, and there's just there's a ton of people, and there's all these kind of I don't know large puppets or something. It you know it's the 50s. They don't have the things we have, but they still sure. want a party, and so it's just a huge set piece ton of extras all this big set um that that's those scenes particularly stood out to me but like i said most of the movie takes place in the house one of the things that made me lean towards putting paul thomas anderson as a third on the stanley kubrick remake shortlist is his penchant for long takes and or locking things down on a tripod probably not a lot of shaky cam in this movie right um, I don't think so. I don't don't remember any long takes particularly. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I maybe I wrong. just had that imagined. It's easy for me to miss miss though. No, um, I, you're probably on the ball. <laughs> the the last uh, thing I do want to uh, comment on is the score uh, by Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Um, nominated for an Oscar, which by the way we should mention Daniel Day Lewis is nominated for Best Actor. Leslie Manville is is nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and this yes. is also. Also nominated for Best Director and Best Picture. So it's got a bunch of nominations. Um, But, sorry, back to the score. The score is brilliant. It really sucks you in. I don't remember it very much at the moment, but the music was a very kind of mesmerizing part of of the film. It definitely made it easier for me to get through. Yeah, you're a music music man. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. and so, well, there's some Oscar stuff I want to say, but we'll, we can save that for the Oscar section. We're almost there, I promise. You said you checked your watch a few times. How, how's the runtime? At two hours, ten minutes, did it feel a little long? I mean... Okay, so I usually, I allow myself to check my watch once. I think once is okay. Okay. You know, sure. it, it, depending on, depending on what, the, what the time is. Um, but I checked my watch at 40 minutes. At 50 minutes, Oof. at an hour, at an hour and 15, like <laughs> a lot. But oh, I, man. but I'm, but I'm really glad I saw it because otherwise I wouldn't be able to discuss it in in depth. And after after I read more about it and some of the themes and you know kind of the dynamics about it, and I understood it more. I I, I appreciated it more. 
Right. The last time I tried to watch a Paul Thomas Anderson movie was Inherent Vice. I don't think they still have it, but HBO had it for a while. It was just hanging out over there, and you could watch it whenever you wanted. And I started that movie, like, three times, and I never got into it because every time I'd end up on my phone or something 15 minutes into the movie, or I'd start it in 10 minutes and be like, I'm not ready to, to, to absorb this and handle this the way I should. I, I love Punch Drunk Love. I love Boogie Nights. I love There Will Be Blood. I, I, I love The Master. But every one of those movies is not a movie I've gone back and watched. Well, save for There Will Be Blood. I haven't watched those movies since. I watched them once and then I'm out. And I'm yeah. sure it's great, but like they're just heavy. There's just, a, there's just a lot to sit down and take in. Almost in the same way Lord of the Rings is a long movie. Like It's like reading a very dense book, watching a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. There's just a lot to unpack. And it's it's it's... It's an exercise in film film theory, I think, watching one of those movies. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. I need to watch it at some point. Andy, would you recommend There Will, there will Be Blood? Would you recommend... <laughs> what am I doing? Would you recommend Phantom Thread? Um, I don't think I would recommend it to most people, honestly. It's, like I said, it's, it's a kind of a chore to get through. And I think when myself as a cinephile, you, yourself as a cinephile... If we have a hard time getting through things, I'm not going to recommend that to kind of the average person. You know, if you're a huge, like, Paul Thomas Anderson fan or a big Daniel Day-Lewis fan, you know, probably definitely go go see it and see the performances. But I probably wouldn't recommend it to most people, <laughs> frankly. Right. Well, that's that might be the first time you've said on this show that you might not recommend something. That's That's a big step. I appreciate you taking it. Thank you for taking the hit for me. I didn't have to see Phantom Thread. I got to see three billboards, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, we need to get to Oscar nominees. It's a big one. Would you would you would you say this is our death of cinema segment? Is that where we're at? This is our death of cinema segment. All right, perfect. The death of cinema. Yes, we're going to talk about Oscar nominees. And I don't know if you... We don't have that much time to talk about this, believe it or not. We got like five minutes. So I don't know if you want to... Lord help us. Dig into favorites and maybe talk about that later. Or just kind of briefly review the list. Or or, uh, where are you? Um, Let's go through the big five awards. Um, Okay. So starting with, with, with Best Picture. And by the way, I do this really pretentious thing where I like to see how many films I've seen that are nominated before the nominations are announced. Of course. Yeah. So I'm I was six for nine uh, this time around. That's pretty good. Um, and now I've seen se- uh, eight of nine. Anyways, so the, the best picture nominees are "Call Me by Your Name," "Darkest Hour," "Dunkirk," "Get Out," "Lady Bird," "Phantom Thread," "The Post," "Shape of Water," and three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Nine out of ten nominees. Right, possible nominees. Right, which means there could have been another slot. There could have been one other movie to go in there. Yeah, maybe my favorite film of the year, Blade Runner 2049, right. which I'm maybe very upset the best not film to be of up the year. There. Me too. I uh, really am upset about that. I I I man, I, I don't I don't talk about snubs a lot, but that one feels like a snub. Like, come on. You had the open slot. What are you doing? Well, I mean, people need to remember that, you know, the Oscars along with any other show, the Grammys, the Golden Globes, the Tonys, whatever, they're all business. They're they're all business agreements. They're all or not agreements. They're they're to generate more business, more buzz around the movies and the studios. And there's a lot of money tied into awards. And they're made to be controversial. They want people arguing about what did and didn't get nominated. So it's so it's good to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but that being said, 
yeah, Blade Runner 2049 was absolutely my favorite. And there's some of these films that I think are, are good. They're very small. They're kind of forgettable. I won't watch them probably more than once. Um, and so I, I was pretty disappointed uh, for that not to be on there. Like, the, the post is, we've discussed this before, it's kind of Spielberg going through the motions. You know, it's a solid movie, but kind of forgettable. Uh, yeah, I, I hate to say I'm surprised to see the post on there, but I kind of am. I feel like that's on there because... The people who are in the Academy were like, well, it's got Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, and Steven Spielberg. Of course it has to be on the list. And meanwhile, a movie like Blade Runner 2049 just, like, gets the snub? Like, come on. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong, the post is good. Most of these movies are really good. I haven't, I've seen five out of nine and a couple of four out of nine. I'm sorry. I own one on Blu-ray and the other's on HBO. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I need to sit down and watch those. But, yeah, this is this is the first movie in a while where I've come in – this hot on, on the best picture noms. Normally I'm like two or three. Uh, yeah. I remember so last far, year. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> last year when we tried to talk about the Oscars, I think I was the only one who had seen any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that was absolutely true. So actor in a leading role, uh, Timothy Chalamet for call me by your name, Daniel day Lewis, Daniel Kaluuya from get out, uh, which is something else we should talk about briefly. Um, get out the sleeper pit horror, social satire film, of the year with uh, Jordan Peele, who was also nominated for best director. That's, that's uh, the one on HBO. I haven't watched yet. I know. What am I doing? How have I not watched get out yet? But that's pretty incredible. And that's something else we should mention is that the, for best director we have um, Greta Gerwig was also nominated for Lady Bird. So you have a woman, uh, a black director amongst the other fields. So it's nice to see a lot of diversity in, in the best director category. No, it's tremendous. It really is. I, I when I saw Get Out nominated for Best Picture, I was like, "Oh man, this is this is something like that." I got to check this movie out. It's really cool. Um, as far as actors, uh, I mean, Daniel Day Lewis was he was fine in Phantom Thread. I, you know, when I <laughs> like he, it just didn't stand out to me. You know, yeah, like he, it's when I right. see him in things like There Will Be Blood or Build a Butcher in uh, Gangs of New York, where he completely looks and sounds and yeah. just disappears is someone else um it's incredible for this it, like i don't know that he's not just playing himself it's movie. wacky i was gonna ask about that with with phantom thread because daniel day lewis watched you know he watched cuts of his performance and this was this was the movie he decided i was just like i'm, I'm done i'm hanging it up and i wonder if he watched his performance and there was any kind of even subliminal kind of feeling that he was just like i'm out like i i mean I'm, it's, I'm not doing it anymore i don't know but it's fine it's just the role itself to me is is not I mean, probably a proper actor would tell you why it's so brilliant. But for me, it was like, okay, he's he's doing Daniel Day Lewis is playing the guy, like nothing right. special. Gary Oldman will probably win for uh, Darkest Hour. Um, by the way, uh, moving on, probably be being that I saw it. Also, the Denzel Washington was the other one. You mind if I take actresses? Sure. Actress in a leading role, Sally Hawkins, The Shape of Water, Frances McDormand, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Margot Robbie, I Tanya. Sersi? Sersha. Sersha. Brutal. Sersha Ronan, Lady Bird, and Meryl Streep, The Post. Any thoughts on these? Um, so I think the favorite is Frances McDormand. I would love to see Margot Robbie take this home. She probably won't, but that was my favorite performance of the year um, by an actress in her leading role. Um, I, Tanya, that just completely disappeared in the, in the character. Um, is goes through various weight changes and yeah it it, it was my, so that was my favorite performance uh, of the year by by uh, actress we've mentioned it 
before I think for me what I find when it, when an actor has produced what should be an Academy Award winning role is exactly what you said when they just disappear in the role when at some point in the movie I forget that who I'm looking at is Margot Robbie because there's so much the character that it convinces me that's who I'm watching and uh, to be fair a handful of these have, have done that I, I gotta uh, Meryl Streep was pretty good who am I kidding Sally Hawkins was incredible Frances McDormand is incredible I haven't seen I, Tanya, but I've heard nothing but good things also didn't see Lady Bird but the same I'm interested to see who takes it I, I would love for Sally Hawkins to scoop it up only because her character was so sincere in yeah. The Shape of Water Frances McDormand is the same way though both big contenders Meryl Streep Maybe not this year. That's just my opinion, but I would like she to gets, see Itania. She has something like 20 nominations. Like I, I've, yeah. it's, it's par for the course. Right. Next next category, what, director? Um, oh, just real quick, we have in supporting role, it's it's um, it's interesting. We have two, actually two roles from Three Billboards, uh, Woody Harrelson and both Sam Rockwell. We do. Uh, we're, we're nominated for that, for that film. And in the supporting role for actress, I just wanted to touch on that Mary J. Blige was nominated for Mudbound. Oh my Nef- gosh, you're right. I didn't notice that. Which is a Netflix that. film. That we, That's Netflix. We, we covered that. Yeah. That's right. We're ahead of the curve. <laughs> Solid movie. I, I'm glad. I think she deserves that. It's a really great performance. Um, and then, yes, uh, you want to take director? Yeah, let me scroll down to it. I was, I was stuck looking at cinematography. <laughs> Directing. Uh, Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan, Get Out, Jordan Peele, which is a big one, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson, and The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro. So this is a pretty stacked field. I, I'm not sure who's going to take it. I would like to see um, Chris Nolan. I mean, he, he's deserved to be – this is his first time being nominated for Best Director, by the way, which is shocking. Is it really? Uh, it really is. Oh, my God, that is shocking. I didn't know that. Um, so I feel like he will probably win just because he kind of, he's, it's like Scorsese. It's like, well, he should have won a while ago, so we're going to finally give it to him. And plus Dunkirk is an incredible piece of directing. It's such a massive scale. You know, you had thousands of extra boats, planes, you know, just like the whole nine yards. I haven't seen Dunkirk. In fact, I've, I've only seen one of these five movies. Um, but man, the shape of water was charming. It was. I, I enjoyed it so much. I'd love to see Guillermo del Toro take it, but you're right. He's got some real heavy hitters here. He's got some big contenders to go up against. Yeah, and the, the other thing that's important to that everyone kind of are, always says is that whoever gets the five directing nominations, those are the real best picture contenders. So if you're not one of those five, you're probably not really in the running. Right, which, um, again, Denis Villeneuve. Blade Runner 2049. Like, did you people not see that brilliant film? Nowhere to be seen. No, I mean, it's got it's got a couple noms, like, down down the line. It's got yeah. sound editing. Yeah, great. But, Roger, uh, Roger Deakins gets his uh, cinematography nomination. Of course. So. Well-deserved, by the way. It looks beautiful. Visual effects. Anyway, I, I, is there anything else you want to talk about? We do need to move on. But if you got another one, we can. No, I'm, I think we're ready. I think we're ready. All right. Well, I think we should swing back around and talk Oscar noms more the closer we get to the big season. I'm sure we'll have more to say about it. Yeah. When are, when are the Oscars, by the way? To put you on uh, the spot. Early March. Okay. So we got a minute. Well, the last movie of the evening, a movie we both saw by Martin McDonough, it is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside. It doesn't put an end Missouri. to shit, you This is just a fing start. Why don't you put that on your Good Morning Missouri wake up broadcast, bitch? You're 
I guess I should take this one. You took Phantom Thread. So I <laughs> yeah, should... you set it up. Well, good. I'm, I'm so prepared. Yes. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is the story of a mother, Frances McDormand, in, of course, Ebbing, Missouri, a small town basically out in the middle of nowhere that has its own little society and culture moving about it. It's set in modern day. Uh, Frances McDormand takes out three billboards, the local ad agency, to write some caustic language uh, and question the local police force regarding a case involving her daughter that has yet to be solved, an unsolved crime. Naturally, this stirs some controversy in the town, and upon inspection, the police force finds that they might have more to deal with in the mother than they might have realized. It stars Frances McDormand as the titular character, Woody Harrelson in a brilliant role, and also Sam Rockwell. All three are nominated for Oscars for this movie, which is saying a lot. It is also it's also nominated for Best Picture, right? Did I miss that? Yes, Best Picture. Yes. So there's a lot going on in this movie. It is rated R. It is an hour and 55 minutes. It is a heavy-hitting, clock-in kind of movie. Andy, what did you think of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri? Uh, overall, I, I really liked it. Um, it's it's very heavy, deals with some very heavy subject matter, touches on themes of violence against women, about racism, about class, um, you know, some very pretty politically charged uh, topics. Um, but I liked that it went in a completely different direction than what I thought, because ultimately the film is... While it touches on those subjects, that's not what it's about. It's about the poisonous power of hate and anger, particularly from our protagonist, because um, we learned very early on that, you know, she's upset at her, that nothing, there have been no arrests in the murder of, of her daughter. And that's why she's taking out the, these billboards to kind of stir the public into action and to be angry at, at the police. Um, but But we learned that, the police have kind of done what they can. And the reason that the crime is unsolved is because it's, it's, it's a cold case. There's no, there's no leads. There's not enough evidence. They've gone through, they've done what they can do and they can kind of do no more, but, but she has a very hard time accepting that. And that's why she's, she's stirring up things in the case. And, and so the film is really about how anger will poison you and poison things around you if like you just keep it inside or and if you don't let things go and i mean she she has justified reasons to be angry but it starts to go too far where it's actually counterproductive right i think the way this movie handles like pain for different characters and how you kind of deal with loss uh, or or accept kind of something that comes your way that's unfortunate is fascinating. And you're right, anger is usually kind of the central theme of it. It's how characters address it, but it's not always that way. Often there's moments of sadness, of sorrow, of, of grief, of regret maybe. Um, but it is, it is a caustic film. It is, it is very much like these people are upset and they're going to deal with it in their own way. And it's... It's a lot of, I hate to say it's fun, but it is. It's a lot of fun watching the kind of roller coaster these characters put themselves and each other through um, in pursuit of what is kind of the goal of the film, really, of, of essentially peace. And and just like real life, I think it kind of echoes this uh, this idea that, like, you don't always find that at the end. You know, it's that you can't be angry forever and get what you want. Sometimes you got to let things go. Other times you shouldn't. And, and it's... 
it kind of just juggles this amongst these characters in a really fascinating way. I think Frances McDormand is kind of our lead is really engaging because she's the character naturally you want to root for. She's a small town mom who's been slighted, you know, who's, who's trying to get something done for her daughter who's no longer around. She feels guilty about this and you're pulling for her, but at the same time, there are definitely things she does that as an audience member, you can't help but question like, man, that seems extreme. You know, that, <laughs> yeah, there, that there, does not seem like the right thing to do. <laughs> there's a lot of, even though it's mo- in modern day, it, it has a, actually kind of a feel of a Western and has some of these same kind of um, themes of lawlessness, vigilantism that, you know, are part of that, that genre, but that reflect in this little kind of enclosed uh, society. Right. I I think Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell are both very well played. It's funny, before I went and saw this movie, I asked, uh, I asked my roommate, Christine, of course, if she wanted to go. And she was like, no, I don't want to. I said, why not? And I was coming at this in a good way, Andy, because I had only seen like one trailer months ago and I had no idea what the plot was. Right. I, I was I was straight up. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going in for. And sometimes I think that's the best way to go see a movie when you just have no idea. Like, just go in blind, you know, and be, be open-minded, don't have any expectations. And she said, no, I don't want to see it because... And then she laid out, like, half the plot that she oh, had read gosh. online. And I'm like, <laughs> oh! And that didn't ruin it. That definitely set me up for something. And that's why I'm trying not to be too particular with my descriptions of, of these characters and kind of how they how they are. Um, but they're all very well portrayed. And that emotion is just so, like... It, 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 it's like a, it's like, it's like a ball inside. I'm just balled up and angry, you know, exactly how people are in real life. Um, it's fantastically written. It's brilliantly directed, especially the performances It is a character film. Um, yeah, it hits the highest highs. It hits the lowest lows. It's really well done. It keeps yeah. you on your toes. You never yeah. know, You never really know what to expect from these characters. And, and I enjoy that. Yeah. It's important to also point out that actually the film is, really funny despite being very dark in the subject matter her character is hilarious i mean she just she like takes no nothing she takes nothing from no one she puts people in their in their place she has all these really brutal one-liners and she just like she just will stand and stare you down and make you feel small and you know it's very entertaining and it's very funny and that's part of the what the film i think is trying to do is sometimes we have to laugh through these terrible moments it's part of what helps us heal and go get through them. I hadn't seen it from last year. I, I hadn't seen it before you told me about it. But I, but when I was watching this movie, I couldn't help but think of your description of Manchester by the Sea. It reminded yeah. me a lot of that. Not in the same, like, tone. But, in yeah, in the same way that, like, it has humor in there to kind of smooth over the bumps and help you kind of get through. And also come to like these characters so that their struggle matters more to you as an audience member. Yeah, you're right. Frances McDormand will, something funny will happen to her and it's, it's funny. And, and she's, there's a certain charm to her for it. Sam Rockwell, especially that like, I'm, I'm usually a quiet, quiet individual. When I watch a movie in a theater, I usually keep to myself. Not saying anything. I genuinely had a laugh out loud towards the end of the movie. Andy, I'll tell you about it later. Cause it's right. a spoiler, but um, that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. And this movie, like, despite, all of these really harsh themes like got me to laugh. Like that says a lot. Yeah, and and there's there's just a lot of really powerful imagery. It, it starts with this beautiful operatic rendition in the background of uh, "Last Rose of Summer," which is just like a classic like tune. Um, mm-hmm. And it replays later in the very middle of the movie 
in in a in a kind of climactic point as well and it was just it's a beautiful blend of cinema and sound right and that's something that was very uh, prevalent in this movie is is the presentation let's just like it's gorgeous first off almost it's shot out in, in i don't know if it's actually shot in ebbing missouri i have no idea where where they actually shot it um but the landscape shots are gorgeous. Everything's just this rich green and this vibrant color, and it's always sunny. And it perfectly offsets what the characters are dealing with internally. It's perfect. Because it's very reminiscent of real life. Whenever you're hurting, whenever you're in pain, like, the rest of the world is normal. Nobody else knows what you're going through. Like, you internalize it, and it only makes it worse. And, like, their feelings, the things they go through, offset against this gorgeous countryside is like a perfect <laughs> it's a, right it's, yeah. a, it's a perfect foil for what's what's happening to them well and even the billboards themselves they're kind of eyesores against this this beautiful backdrop um and th- there's a couple of other things that i wanted to say so number one is that the the film is set up to be one thing so when i saw the trailer this looked like oh it's going to be the underdog mom against this corrupt or lazy police force and they're going to hit the grindstone and they're going to do their jobs and they're going to solve this case. And it it completely is nothing like that. It's about much, much deeper things. Um, The other thing I want to talk about is that uh, Woody Harrelson's great. It reminds me a lot of his character in True Detective. Yeah, me too. True Detective, definitely. Um, But there's several points in the film where he he writes letters uh, to different characters and then they're read and he does this voiceover. And those are some of the most powerful points in the film. And it's very unexpected because you wouldn't think that, you know, voiceover of someone reading would be that impactful. Especially Woody Harrelson of all all people. But yeah, no, I gotcha. Um, Gosh, I, I don't have enough good things to say about this movie. Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. The, the only I had a, do have a couple of criticisms. Um, so the Please. short the short one I'll say is that I kept this is the Lord the Return of the King problem. I kept thinking it was going to end several times before it did. Me too, definitely. Um, so it kind of has too many en- endings, or I was I just wasn't sure um, when it was going to end. The other thing is that it does deal with some very heavy topics that are very currently relevant, and sometimes it gets a little heavy handed. In them, and I think sometimes that's in danger of being a real turnoff to some people. I've read some comments and heard some reviews along those lines that people like I, I couldn't get in the movie because it's so so obvious and so heavy handed. I need to. I, you should send me a couple of those links because I don't. I guess I didn't pick up on that on, on the heavy handedness, and, and I want to ask more, but I don't want you to spoil anything. So I don't know if you can offer any more information or if I should. It mostly has to do with like the pol- depictions of police and police brutality. Right, which, okay, yeah, now that you say that, that actually does make a little bit of sense. It's it's a little on the nose. Um, yeah, to to contrast, uh, in I, Tanya, it also kind of covers uh, themes of domestic violence and violence against women, but it does it in a very subtle, never explicitly stated way. It's very passive, and it's, it's almost more impactful because of that. It's funny, this this movie I felt like had a passive moment of kind of passing domestic violence too that I thought was very I thought was well done for what it was it definitely is a surprise Mm -hmm. um two things I did think the movie struggled to find its pace at first it felt like it was it felt like I was dancing to a song and I couldn't get on the right beat 
Like I just couldn't kind of fall into the pace of the film because it, it, it's hard to get into it first. The way that it kind of cuts from scene to scene and cuts across town and this is happening over here and this is happening over here and you can't really tell what day things are happening on or when things are going together. And like over time, you kind of fall into the rut of the movie and you start to figure out, okay, this is kind of the universe they're building and I get it. Um, but it was difficult for me to get into it first. I did, but it takes a minute. Like there, there, there are times where it seems like the movie will jump weeks potentially at a time. I mean, right. in the cut of a scene, and it's not like, oh, here's you know, here's a newspaper, here's what day it is today, or like they have some little thing on the bottom that says here's the date. Like, it doesn't happen. You just kind of have to figure it out. And and it could have been days for all I know. Like, I could be wrong, but it does jump around a little bit, and you should be ready for that. The other thing I wanted to mention was actually praise. Um, there is a brilliant long take scene in this movie. I I, I love long take. It's handheld. Uh, it follows Sam Rockwell's character. It's about it's probably about halfway through the movie. I don't know. Oh yeah, I re- see. These are the things I, I, re- I distinctly remember this scene. I right. didn't. It didn't clock into me that it's a long take. Of course, it's oh, a I long love take. Yeah, I, 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 I am a sucker for a good long take. I love long takes, and and this one is pretty well done. There, there was one bit in there that I was like, and eh, they could have, they could have cheesed that, but for the most part, like it looks real good. It's it's really slick. So, um, keep an eye out for that when you watch it. Uh, Andy, any, any, any closing thoughts before recommendations? Um, I mean, other than, like I said, it's, it's brilliant. It's definitely one of the best films of the year. Great performances and a very deep, deep message. Like I said, it, it turned out completely different, not only just the plot, but also just a lot of the characters you think they're going to be one way and they turn out, uh, very differently. And, and a central message of, um, you know, just the poisoning power of anger. Right. I think you can predict where my recommendation will go. Like I said earlier, I don't have enough good things to say about this movie. But Andy, would you recommend Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I would as well, despite its atrocious title um, that probably should have been something else. I respect that they went for it. Um, This movie is good, and I felt like watching it, it's it's heavy for me. And it, it reminds me of something... It, it, it's one of those pieces of media that I feel like I, I will come back. I won't, I won't buy the Blu-ray. I won't go immediately see it again, but I'll sit on it. And in a few years, it'll show up on HBO or something or somewhere and I'll watch it again. And I feel like it'll mean something different at another point in my life. It's, 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 there's a lot to it and right. it's good. And it, like I said, it taps into a very human emotion that not a lot of movies are able to get into in the same way. So well, I really and- enjoyed it. Thought it was great. Yeah, well, and this is what I said earlier is, is like Phantom Thread. I'm glad I saw it, but I don't really want to sit through it again. But I definitely want to see uh, Three Billboards again at some point. Right. It would be a solid entry for the Blu-ray collection, though. I, I, I should say. It's not that it, not that I won't buy it. It's just I'm not going to. It's not like Blade Runner. I'm not going to go on day one and pick it up. But it is solid entry. So I think with that, um, we probably need to just about wrap up the show. Um, we ran a little long this week. I'm trying to get better about watching things, but it's okay. Uh, I think it was worth it. Moving forward, something we were talking about before the show. We're planning on talking about Blade Runner 2049. If you haven't heard, we like it. Uh, in a few <laughs> weeks, I think we're going to actually maybe dig into something a little bit more spoilery. Talk about some more themes of the movie and actually kind of... I won't say put it to rest because I love it, but just kind of dig into it a little bit more. So if you want to hear that, it's out on Blu-ray. Please check it out if you haven't seen it yet. It is absolutely worth your time. 
Um, we can probably save a Blade Runner 2049 spoiler segment for something like the end of the episode, but we'd love your feedback. We'd love you to be a part of it. So watch the movie and look forward to our conversation about it. Uh, send us emails and be great. And if you'd like to give us feedback about this episode, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. Max, we appreciate your correspondence. And um, yeah, please get involved with the show. And any closing thoughts? Um, well, there's not really much coming out this week. Um, I might go see the horror movie uh, Winchester uh, with Winchester, Helen Mirren. Yes. Um, but other than that, not too much. I might look for things on Netflix. Uh, some things coming up in February that we'll definitely be talking about. Uh, the 1517 to Paris, <laughs> which, which I can't and wait by- to hear. It bothers me that you laugh at that now. I didn't mean to like completely taint your interpretation of the film. I just no, I'm, I'm very cynical about it. I, I'm looking forward to your review. Um, yeah. Black Panther, which is the the Marvel, the first Marvel movie of the year, which will probably be a huge, huge uh, movie. Um, and then Annihilation at the end of the month, which is uh, Alex Garland's um, sci-fi film with Natalie right. Portman. Something I think I, I should. I should touch on like, man, I, I love going to see movies for this podcast. It's always a little bit of a hassle, frankly, but like it felt so good to walk out of three billboards, just a great movie and look at the posters of what's coming up on my way out and be like, Oh, going to go see that. That'll be cool. Like it's, it's, it's really refreshing. It's been, it's been a long time since I went to go see movies like this. It's a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to, especially Annihilation. I think it'll be really cool. Black Panther, I think will be cool. And I, <laughs> I, I do not want to go see 1517 <laughs> to Paris, but if you see it, I might go check it out. Yeah, okay. it might be worth talking about. So, yeah, um, I suppose from off script, the home of bold cinema, I forgot to say it at the opening of the show. Uh, this has been, I'm, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. And we are done. Thanks a lot.